This program is brought to you by PersonalLifeMedia.com. From time immemorial, beginning with indigenous councils and ancient wisdom traditions, through the work of Western visionaries such as Plato, Galileo, and quantum physicist David Bohm, mutually participatory dialogue has been seen as the key to evolving and transforming consciousness, evoking a flow of meaning, a dia flow of logos meaning, beyond what any one individual can bring through alone. So join us now as together with you, the active deep listener, we evoke and engage in living dialogues. Welcome to Living Dialogues. I'm your host, Duncan Campbell. And with me for this particular dialogue, I'm truly delighted to have as my guest, my great friend, Chip Cummings, the founder of Our Day, the American Renewable Energy Day, A-R-E-D-A-Y. And you can find out more about that in addition to this dialogue at rday.net. That's A-R-E-D-A-Y dot net. And you know, Chip, it's just great to be here again on Living Dialogues and talking about our day because this is our day 2009 that's coming up. And that will be August 20 to 22, Thursday through Saturday in Aspen, Colorado. So welcome to the program. It's always a great pleasure to be able to talk about these kinds of things. Thank you, Duncan. It's a very wonderful pleasure to be here as well. And what I'm really excited about here is that this year we are seeing a tremendous acceleration in the world of new energy and renewable energy. Uh, when I was there at our day in Aspen in 2008, it was an extremely interesting group of people and I had a great time. And yet we were still in the throes of the election with John McCain, the uncertainty of the outcome. This was before the great revelation of September of 2008, when uh, John McCain showed his limitations in terms of dealing with some of these larger issues, such as the economy and so on. And so now that Barack Obama has been in office for even only 150 days or thereabouts, there's been a tremendous rapid movement of focus and energetic direction in and toward a new energy economy. So before we talk about this year's group of people that we know are going to be there to co-create with all the rest of us as presenters, let's talk about your own background and how you came to create this event. We're now in its sixth year. And so let's tell us a little bit about Chip Cummings and how you came to this calling. Well, thanks, Duncan. I began making films about renewable energy and sustainability at the end of the 90s. And through a, a conversation with Amory Lovins and, and Rocky Mountain Institute and Hunter Lovins and uh, also Paul Hawken, they all collaborated on a book called uh, Natural Capitalism that became a, a profound influence in my thinking and mm -hmm. understanding about our world, uh, the natural world, and our resources and how we were using them. And so because uh, we have taken half the world's oil out of the ground since 1860 when we discovered it and put it into the atmosphere in really 150 years thereabouts, creating a, a tremendous effect on our environment, we are very doggedly pursuing the, the solutions to the great 
carbonization of our planet as, as has been human induced and so our day came about in 2004 in partnership with the city of aspen it was just a small event one day event with some films shown in the evening but we managed to attract people like randy udall and some of the other thought leaders in our area including the Rocky Mountain Institute, by the way, to, to come out and uh, begin to have a dialogue literally on the streets of Aspen. And that's grown in a very short uh, six years into a conference that is over three days. And last year we attracted Ted Turner and Lester Brown and Peter Buffett and, and a host of other um, national leaders on the subject of renewable energy and energy efficiency to come out to Aspen and to engage in what we must do in order to solve the problem. One of the most important things I think for the audience to note will be that the, the hockey stick graph that we're all familiar with uh, that has to do with the carbon in the atmosphere also tracks exactly with the other hockey stick graph which is the human population. And one goes with the other in terms of the amount of people driving the amount of cars, burning that amount of coal, it tracks exactly with the explosion in the, in the population, giving us a mechanism to release all this carbon. So our day really uh, is designed to address that and really what we're going to do about it and what we're going to do fast. And to me, one of the great attractions of our day is that it's not one of these elite events where people have to pay several thousand dollars to participate and they are already entrenched in what we might say is the dominant model of American capitalism that has broken down so thoroughly in the last several months uh, and should be paving the way and giving us uh, an opportunity to restructure it along more dynamic and democratic and uh, dialogic basis because it is going to be from dialogue and innovation of people at the grassroots that really these solutions are going to emerge. The people that are entrenched in the highly centralized, bureaucratized, large energy companies, the large financial institutions, those institutions that are said to be too big to fail, actually have already failed. They have failed the public interest enormously. I think of it in terms of the highway system, which was designed and built in the 50s because we were feeling, according to Eisenhower, a military threat from the Cold War that needed to have an interstate highway system that would allow men and materiel in any kind of national emergency to be transported from point A to point B. And those roads were laid down as a public service, we might say, and they have served us over the last 50 years years as great communication networks for the movement of products and goods and a thriving economy to develop. And they still, at the moment, are largely free. They're, they're available for the public and so on. By contrast, the highway system, we might call it, of finance has become 
progressively in the last 30 years detached from its public purpose. Banking and investment banks are designed to create financing so that innovation and production of real product can take place. And it has not been taking place because the financial system detached itself from the productivity system and just became a way for the greed of the second gilded age of the amassing of a lot of private abstract wealth in the form of money to be accumulated by people that were bilking the public and what turned out to be essentially uh, a Ponzi scheme of credit derivatives very much as Bernie Madoff operated with Ponzi schemes. And so if we now look at our energy system, we see highly centralized utility companies that are increasingly becoming an oxymoron. There is nothing public about a public utility system that thrives on the production and use of energy for itself to make a profit as opposed to teaching people and practicing conservation of energy, which, as Amory Lovins has said, is a lot more inexpensive than the use of fuel. If we could learn how to conserve our energy, use it properly, and to also use clean energy, this is the business model that we need to develop and reward. That means we have to move to a distributed system, we have to get people involved at the grassroots, and we have to get solar on the free real estate of the rooftops that already exists. We don't have to go out and pay big money to acquire it or build expensive coal plants that are just going to create create social impacts and environmental destruction. So why our day, to me, is very interesting that it is affordable for ordinary people to actually go to this very energetic, I must say, and fun conference in Aspen where we can all together socialize and have the kind of dialogic conversations that will be the seed corn Uh, for all of us to go back into our own lives and apply some of the ideas that we generate together. So it's not like going to someplace where we're going to hear people tell us how to do things and just transmit information one way, but we're actually modeling the way to create an energetic field which will reveal new solutions to some of the challenges that we have. And so let's talk about some of the people that are going to be there, not as people speaking ex cathedra and saying, this is how it is and this is what you must do, but people that are going to put out their own ideas and uh, engage in a kind of dialogic interchange with other people there. So let's just kind of highlight some of the themes that you see are going to be happening at this gathering on August 20 and 22 in Aspen, Colorado. Oh, absolutely. I, I'm very excited that uh, we'll be joined by some of the uh, nations and, in, and indeed the world's leading thinkers on this issue of uh, of renewable energy, uh, energy efficiency, and sustainability. Uh, as an example, Lester Brown will be joining us. Uh, he founded the State of the World organization, wrote the annual report for many years, starting in the 70s, 80s, and uh, really has kept track of, of exactly uh, the human impact uh, on on the uh, the earth and the uh, the ecosystems of the planet and now this month scientific american has a wonderful article on lester brown and they're and they're talking about how lester was somewhat of a pessimist for all of those years and then now he has a newfound optimism 
And, and I was speaking with him a couple of weeks ago, and it was an extraordinary conversation because at that time he informed me uh, while I was inten- attending Al Gore's uh, National Summit in Nashville, by the way, he informed me that the country of China, which is now equal to the United States in its carbon emissions, together we both put out about half of the world's CO2 emissions on an annual basis. The country of China, through its national development of resources corporation is developing 100,000 megawatts of wind. So these are this is such a vast scale of wind energy projects that they're actually being called wind complexes and the smallest of which is 7,000 megawatts. The largest is about 20,000. The scale is enormous. It's so big that they're going to actually locate the manufacturing of the blades and the nacelles and the turbines where the wind farms are going to be positioned. So no matter, Lester was very encouraging. He said no matter what happens at the the, uh, Copenhagen climate talks where uh, Kyoto will be expiring and and the world will come together to agree about how to best go forward in terms of uh, reducing our carbon and um, taking the next step uh, towards the solution to this uh, this terrible problem that we are in fact now entering a phase where no matter what the governments decide to do the private industry is going to do it anyway because when Amory Lovins said so many years ago that there's more money to be made in saving energy than there is in producing it, he was right. And so now that's being borne out. And now when we are in the midst of the collapse of our financial institutions, as you mentioned, and the financial derivatives are nothing more being revealed to be nothing more than a shell game, and that it's all coming to surface, that the truth of our modern affluence, our posterity, is now being indicated to actually be real only in the context of how we relate to the natural world. And that the natural world is, in fact, the real wealth and the basis of all of our affluence. So what I'm trying to do with our day is to provide a forum for folks like Amory and Lester and Governor Ritter and many others leaders uh, in our in our state and in our nation to come together to architect a blueprint, a diagram of where we must go, where we have no other choice but to go, and that in fact the President of the United States is is keenly and well aware of these issues, and he's trying his very best, in my view, to navigate through a very difficult legacy that he has uh, been left by the preceding administrations, and that. We are in this this time of great change and transformation in our nation and in our world, where we're restructuring exactly how we're going to live on the planet, how we're going to localize economies, how we're going to become much more efficient, how our homes will now also become places that we're growing food how we're going to deal with water, how we're going to deal with atmosphere, how we're going to deal with earth. And we're going to begin to really do it with one key word, and that's balance, because it all comes down to a question of balance between all of these things. So I think that when 
for instance, Sylvia Earle is joining us. And Sylvia Earle is a wonderful woman who used to be the chief scientist at NOAA for many years, and she is the leading voice on the world's oceans and the health of all of the mm -hmm. oceans and, and, and their inhabitants. And we know that the oceans are the biggest carbon sink on the planet, and they're becoming very acidified, and that the coral reefs are in trouble and so forth. Sylvia, we'll, we'll talk about that. You know, three quarters of the, the planet is, 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 is our ocean. And she'll bring her wisdom into our day, along with the wisdom that Amory and Lester and so many others that are coming. Uh, Bracken Hendricks, who mm -hmm. is a thought leader from the, what is being termed the gold standard. He works with John Podesta over at the Center for American Progress, and that they call the uh, PCAP, the Presidential's Climate Action uh, Project that Bill Becker uh, chaired. He'll be at our day, and they delivered that to the president. This is what they're suggesting must happen in the first hundred days, the first thousand days, in terms of this transition into a new energy economy. And indeed, Bracken Hendricks has been a guest here on Living Dialogues, along with Jay Inslee, his uh, co-author in the great book uh, Apollo's Fire, which came out a couple of years ago. It's really pioneering collection of showing the ideas and projects that are already well underway. Oftentimes, these don't get uh, covered at all in the mainstream media, and there is tremendous hope, as Lester understands, as I understand, as you understand, because we're aware of some of the technologies that have already been fully developed and are just waiting for this public-private partnership that is now maybe finally possible with the Obama administration to be brought to scale and to show that even without the kind of massive subsidies that the oil and gas industry has perversely enjoyed over the last period of exploitation of the last 40 years, we will have renewable and new and clean energy sources uh, competitive in the marketplace and available for people to adopt themselves. And hopefully we'll get a turnaround with our utility companies, which up until now have really been a tremendous drag on our energy system because of the centralized business model that has gone unchallenged. The same kind of business model that turned out to be a tremendous failure in our automobile industry. Recently, two of the leading vice presidents in General Motors were quoted publicly after it went into bankruptcy as saying that their biggest concern is that the culture of entrenched bureaucracy and the business model that was uh, so unchallenged within General Motors is what brought it down. And they need a radical restructuring from within and a new vision, which is actually oriented toward the public and what the public wants, not what they want and their allies in the oil industry in terms of gas guzzlers and SUVs and so on. They turned out to be really tone deaf to the common sense of the driving public, we might say. And it's the same thing. Anybody that owns a home or even rents is very aware of the anxiety level of what you're calling the hockey stick graph of rising energy costs. I was at a meeting with about 300 people where I live in Boulder, Colorado, at which the CEO of Natural Capitalism, the organization that came out of that book that Amory and Hunter wrote along with Paul Hawken, 
he showed a graph of the oil prices for the last two or three years, including the huge spike up that happened in the summer of 2008 with all the speculation that the markets denied was happening, but clearly was happening. And nonetheless, uh, it woke people up. It woke up Americans to our oil dependency in a way that they had been asleep to almost willfully for the previous decades. The question was asked, how many people feel that oil prices are going to go down in the future? Not a single hand went up that they're going to trend downward. Like any kind of market, they might have little ups and downs, but the trend is always up. He then showed the price of natural gas for the last several years. And, of course, it's going up and down, up and down, but trending always upward. And he asked the same question. How many people feel the cost of natural gas is going to go down in the future? Not a single hand went up. Just a few days ago, the Wall Street Journal had an expose of the coal industry, which has liked to promote itself as the U.S. is the Saudi Arabia of coal. We have enough to last for hundreds and hundreds of years. Well, those figures were taken apart by, of all newspapers, the Wall Street Journal, and showing that in the Gillette field, for instance, in Wyoming, the largest coal field in the United States, only 6% of that coal is uh, extractable at any kind of reasonable price, even with today's prices. And so the price of coal, supposedly our most abundant uh, fossil fuel resource, is also trending upward. So what we see is that all fossil fuels, without a single exception, are trending inexorably upward. What does that mean to the homeowner? It means that all of us have a subconscious level of continuing anxiety about our future. Unless we do what is now increasingly being called in green building terms, unless we future-proof our homes in terms of the energy system, in other words, have solar or wind that allows us to be independent from the grid in a way that assures that we will have a zero energy house. That's the next term that's coming online now. Zero energy, meaning you don't have to draw off the grid, putting us in a position then, as Germany has created, of feedback tariffs where homeowners are actually encouraged to put solar on the roof so that they can develop and have more energy than they need so they can sell it back to the grid, which then becomes a distribution system for other needs that are not self-reliant in the commercial sector and, and elsewhere. And so it's this kind of model that we need to move to. We need to move to the self-reliant home-car alliance, where you have a car and a home that actually produce more energy than they use. And that technology is right over the horizon. These are the kinds of exciting ideas that are democratizing the the field of energy in which we all live that will be taking place at our day. It's not people coming and passively listening to thought leaders that are wedded to the old paradigm. No, these are thought leaders that are in dialogue with other thought leaders, which means any participant, any person that goes to our day, you don't have to have written an article, you don't have to have a reputation or have written a book. The energetic interchange between people, as I experienced it myself last year, is very, very democratic. And there were people that you met, that I met there last year without name or reputation, but who are involved in one form or another of a creative interaction with these energy issues that together 
those kinds of dialogues that we had in the interstices of the conference were tremendous and very inspiring of what Amory Lovins, your fellow Aspen resident, has called applied hope. And I just want to say something about pessimism and optimism because Amory Lovins, in an interview and dialogue that he had with you that's published in a magazine that is distributed to many of the residents of Aspen, he said, well, you know, I'm often asked about my essay, Applied Hope, which was part of Rocky Mountain Institute's uh, annual report for 2007 and 2008. People say, well, maybe you're just having a kind of optimism toward the future that doesn't have any groundedness. He said, well, actually, I'm not an optimist. My mentor, David Brower, said, optimism and pessimism are just different faces of the same simplistic surrender to fatalism. In other words, fatalism that treats the future as fate, not choice, without taking responsibility for creating the future we want. Close quote. And he then says, uh, I live and work in a state of applied hope, which requires me and us to work hard and to bravely fix what's wrong and to do what's right. Close quote again. And that reminded me of Ted Turner's statement that drew a great deal of laughter and applause in its simple common sense wisdom, where he said, when I left the board at Time Warner, I just said to the board, my advice is simple. Stop doing the dumb things and start doing the smart things. And really, that is the message, I think, continually that we give each other when we say, hey, let's be honest here. The models that we've had in our energy system up until now are not only not working for the public good, they're actually creating tremendous problems and are really only going to create more problems unless we stop doing business as usual, put our heads together and our hearts and create some innovative ways of doing things and do it together. And here we have Barack Obama the only one of all the candidates in 2008 that said, yes, we can, together we can. Both Hillary Clinton in the primaries and John McCain in the election said, I will fight for you. I will get to the top of these centralized pyramids of institutional power centers, and I'll fight for you inside there because you, of course, don't have any access to them. And I know you don't really have any good ideas. I'll work with the elites to develop some good ideas because I know kind of what you want. Well, this is not the model anymore. This is a failed model. So what we've always talked about here in Living Dialogues is the power of dialogue, the power of engaged dialogue and deep listening, which is extraordinarily democratic. And I can say on this program, receiving emails from people in countries and continents all over the world that people are ready, people are full of ideas, they want to get together, and this opportunity of our day here in a beautiful environment in Aspen is a tremendous possibility that I think we might just now, as we're coming to the close, give people a little more information of how they can participate, how they can register, and let's talk at the practical level. Chip, how do people plug into this? Sure. Well, our day takes place in 2009, the week of August the 20th through the 22nd. That's a Thursday through Saturday. And we take the approach of doing it in five ways, which is through demonstration, presentation, performance, film, and dialogue. And so you can go to the R-Day website, rday.net, 
and register online up until July 19th for a 40% discount on your R-Day Pass. There's also daily tickets that will be available. The agenda will be coming out shortly. But right now we do have over 35 committed thought leaders coming to the conference. There's also a free portion of R-Day, which happens on Saturday from 12 noon to 6 p.m. on the downtown Aspen Mall next to the park. We'll have tents and tables, and we'll have renewable energy displays and demonstrations, and there'll be a stage. And last year we had John Oates uh, playing some music. Perhaps he'll come back again this year. So please consider coming and joining us in Aspen to actually lend your voice to the solution that faces all of us and that is there for the taking. And as Amory Levin said, applied hope works. It's fun. It feels good, and it's spreading. So go grab some applied hope, spin it up, and pass it around. And so that's the kind of thing we can all do together in that beautiful setting in Aspen, August 20 to 21st. Rday.net is the website, A-R-E-D-A-Y.net, to register or call the Wheeler Opera House if you don't have access to the Internet and get your tickets from there. So, Chip, once again, a very stimulating, wonderful, pleasurable dialogue, and I look forward to more uh, here and uh, in Aspen. Thank you, Duncan. Always a pleasure. I'm your host, Duncan Campbell, inviting you to be with us again next time on Living Dialogues. And visit us on my website, livingdialogues.com. That's living, D-I-A-L-O-G-U-E-S dot com. And if you'd like to listen freely to additional archived visionary dialogues with myself and other transformational thinkers listed on my livingdialogues.com website, once you have entered your subscription to the Living Dialogues podcast here on Personal Life Media, future Living Dialogues will automatically be downloaded to your computer on a weekly basis. Or simply browse through the list of programs here whenever you like, download them, or listen to them on your computer. Thanks again for your deep listening in evoking this program. All the very best. And stay tuned now after the music for some very interesting opportunities available to you as a listener to Living Dialogues. Find more great shows like this on personallifemedia.com.